on June 14th of this year. Julie and I will celebrate 13 years of being married to one another. That's 13 years of marital bliss, right, sweetie? There's been moving from apartment to apartment and house to house. There's been different roles and opportunities for gospel ministry we've shared together in different churches. There have been mountaintop joys we've experienced together. And there have been tear-soaked valleys that we have walked through together. Not to mention untold amounts of answered prayers from the Lord. But also along the way, there have been sad and disappointing outcomes to plans we had high hopes for together. Three children later, having lived in three different states together, if you count D.C. as a state, but I'm just trying to keep the three gang going, we've really got to know one another over these last 13 years. But what's been most unique about being married through these years is how much God has shown us what we didn't know about ourselves. The longer I've been married to Julie, the more I realize I did and didn't know her as well as I thought we did when we first met. And not to mention, the longer Julie's been married to me, the more she's realized how much she did and didn't know what I'm really like compared to when we first met. I'm sure many of you married couples in here sitting in here today can attest to that reality. That's because marriage can bring to the surface things about ourselves that we didn't even know were already there, deep down in our hearts. Uh, Marriage can even expose any pretense, any show that we're just trying to put on. I mean, you can only look so good on your first and second date for so long. Eventually, Monday morning's coming after the honeymoon and the, well, the the real you is going to get exposed. Or maybe that first time you tried to impress your in-laws. There's only so many Thanksgiving meals that you can impress them at before they get to see the real you. You see, marriage can bring to the light even those lovely and wonderful things that we have no problem showing off to others with. Uh, Things that we want others to know about us. But marriage can reveal those not-so-good things about ourselves, can't it? Marriage can expose the things that we typically don't want others to know about us, ever. Given enough time, we all see what is heart-revealing about this spiritually sanctifying gift called marriage when two sinners... Say, I do. Now, to be totally honest with you, when I'm asked to officiate a wedding, I find myself filled with all sorts of mixed thoughts and emotions. Now, most of the time, I'm pretty excited and happy. If I know the couple really well, I've had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with them, it's pretty sweet for me. It's a privilege to take them from kind of their first step to that last step before they enter into a whole new chapter together. But the wedding day itself still comes with me with a little churning in my stomach. I mean, even as a married man after these 13 years, I'm always wondering in the back of my mind, does this man and woman know exactly what they're getting themselves into? Are there expectations about marriage 
and how they view each other accurate or realistic? Now, to be sure, there, there is excitement that I have on wedding days. I'm not trying to be Mr. Scrooge if you invite me to a wedding anytime soon. Weddings are certainly a time to rejoice in and have fun. I like to enjoy some wedding cake, lots of it. I tend to get a kick out of the mother of the bride trying to take over the day as I get to sit back and see if premarital counseling paid off as they manage the chaos on their exciting day. But for me, there's that part of the wedding that I think most of us look forward to, or at least we should. The moment when everyone gets quiet and the back door is open. The piano begins to play in order to signal to the bride who has made herself ready. And the people are gathered and they begin to position themselves to gaze at the bride. Then the father and the bride are standing And as the congregation sees them, they stand too. As the bride takes her first step towards her future husband, the groom is standing there, crying like a baby. What a wimp. He goes from looking all GQ and confident to sobbing, but with tears of joy. He's lost in the moment. All eyes are on the bride and everyone around him just seeds to fade in the background. But for me as the pastor and the officiant of the wedding, the most solemn moment comes when the bride and groom exchange their wedding vows. These vows, especially the more traditional vows that many of us probably exchanged with our spouse years ago, there's a gravity to them, a seriousness in a way that most people don't make promises to you ever again in their life. A vow or a promise to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health. In the man to the bride, to lead, love, and to cherish. And the woman to the groom, to love, cherish, and to submit till death us do part. According to God's holy ordinance, and there too I give you myself. What makes these vows so weighty is that they are promises. They are pledges to love someone before the future actually gets here. In other words, you're committing before God and a crowd of witnesses to lead and serve, provide for and protect, persevere with and show patience towards someone that might be quite different 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, even to 60 years from now. Author Stanley Hauerwas goes so far as to say that once you get married, you are really learning how to love a stranger. He writes, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. 
For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find you are married to. Marriage, according to Mr. Hauerwas, is learning how to love a stranger. If you're married here today, is that how you viewed your future marriage before you entered into it? Chances are that wasn't on your expectations or assumptions that you had prior to your wedding day. But expectations and assumptions are common to each one of us. They can affect every aspect of our life well beyond just marriage. Whether it's marriage or the new job you've applied for and hope to get, or the new church you've joined, or the new neighborhood you moved into, we all have these hidden expectations. We all have a fixed idea in our minds that we've projected on something or someone that actually may not be accurate. Or at the very least, it may not be all that realistic. But what about your spiritual life? Are there any expectations or assumptions you have about Jesus that aren't totally accurate? Is there anything about Jesus' teaching and the choices he would make in his life that have ever made you scratch your head? Well, this morning we find ourselves in the next section in our sermon series in Mark's gospel, where the Jesus that is presented to us did not meet the expectations of the popular religious leaders of his day. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 489. Mark chapter 2. Last week, we got to study a fascinating account of Jesus demonstrating that he is more than a teacher. And he is more than a healer. In Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, we witnessed how Jesus would demonstrate a divine authority to forgive sinners. Something only God alone can do. That's why he was charged with blasphemy. But the irony of the passage is that the ones who were calling him a blasphemer, they were the ones actually committing blasphemy. Because Jesus is God's only son who is also God incarnate. Well, he would heal this paralytic man completely of his physical handicap, and at the same time, he would forgive completely this man of all his sin. Today, we encounter a quality about Jesus and his mission on earth that surprises some of the religious leaders of his day. He surprises them actually by a party that Jesus shows up to. And he surprises them in such a way that I think might even surprise some of us sitting in here this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Please follow with me as I read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. 
and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. In verse 13, we witness Jesus returning back to the approximate area where he had called his first disciples. Remember Simon and Andrew? James and John? Where were they when Jesus would tell them to follow him? It was the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us right there in Mark 2, 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. As you may recall from Mark chapter 1, Jesus' popularity began to skyrocket in Capernaum, and then it would spread like wildflower all over the region. After confronting a demon-possessed man in a synagogue of all places and casting that demon out of him, Jesus went from being viewed as an ordinary Jewish itinerant teacher from a no-name town of Nazareth to being the very talk of the town. In reality, he became the front-page news on everyone's mind. Look again at Mark 1, verse 28. Mark 1, verse 28. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And again, after Jesus heals a leper, one who had been ostracized and quarantined from society, the leper can't keep this miracle to himself. We read in Mark 1, verse 45. Look down in Mark 1, verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. 
and people were coming to him from every quarter. So you'll notice here in Mark 2 that his popularity wasn't waning. The tickets at the box office weren't kind of declining to find Jesus. Uh, Jesus' popularity or even Jesus' willingness or attempt to try to get away from the crowds wasn't entirely successful. Mark says here in Mark 2.13, did you notice? The crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Again, Mark's just being consistent here. As he was in chapter 1 in his prologue and introduction to Jesus' public ministry, and even here at the beginning of chapter 2, Mark is emphasizing for us the primary mission for what Jesus' ministry would emphasize, preaching and teaching. That means, friends, regardless, if there were just a handful of disciples hanging out with Jesus, or there was a massive sea of people looking for Jesus. Jesus always knew who he was and why he came to this earth. You know, unlike many of us, some of you might be entering that midlife crisis stage or maybe an identity crisis. Friends, Jesus never had any of those. He didn't need to go to a psychiatrist, a counselor, He didn't need to go to anyone for advice on how he should spend his time. Jesus didn't need a magic eight ball to shake up and figure out why he was put on the earth. He wasn't flipping a coin, trying to figure out what he should do the next day. No, Jesus never second-guessed his salvation operation for which he was sent to accomplish He was a heaven-sent man to do his heavenly Father's will, and one day he would be heaven-bound in his Father's timing. And one of the things we'll notice about Jesus is that he took every opportunity he could to teach or instruct people about the kingdom of God. You see, the crowds came to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Some came to him for physical healing. So others were just curious, who is this man? Others were suspicious of Jesus. But one thing Jesus did while he redeemed his time on earth is he proclaimed the gospel. He faithfully would teach the truths of God's word, and he would warn people about the day of judgment still to come. Brothers and sisters, as followers of the gospel-preaching Jesus, We should not be stingy with proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to others. As followers of the gospel preaching Jesus, we should not be stingy with proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to others. That means all of us, all of us, not just the preacher, not just the Bible study leader, not just the people the church pays on staff, Every follower of Jesus should desire to spread the seeds of God's word far and wide. That when people meet us, beyond small talk, beyond talks about the weather, we bleed the Bible. When people are around us, we should be a people that when we speak, the word of God just rolls off our tongues. Listen, if you know enough to be saved you know enough to tell others how to be saved. 
And if you've been studying the Bible for years on end, and I know some of you, or if not most of you have, brothers and sisters, we have more truth in our heads this morning than some people will ever have of God's truth in a lifetime. So brothers and sisters, you and I need to tremble this morning. If you have been taught any measure of biblical truth, Bible doctrine, the gospel of Jesus, at any measure for weeks, months, and years on end, to whom much is given, much is required. Friends, do not be hoarders from what God has taught you. Be exporters. Don't be stingy. Be generous with telling others God's word. Brothers and sisters, let's be a church that takes every opportunity to teach other people about our God. Whether you're at the gym, getting that last set, best set in, talking about Jesus to the one spotting you, or talking at the hair salon. You see, hair salons, not Lindsay's, they like to talk. Well, let's give something for these people to talk about. Listen, hair salons and Crown Barbershop in Fayetteville, people like to talk. Get that fade, we get into Jesus eventually. Listen, take every opportunity you can in your living room, in the conference room at work, or even at a birthday party or bridal shower. Friends, let's leverage the open doors God drops in our lap to teach others about Jesus. And so let's pray. Amidst all the things we pray for, let's pray to be a zealous and bold church that teaches other people who Jesus is. And let's start that even with the people we attend church with. Let's start that with the people we live with and work with. The Lord will honor that faithfulness. Plant the seeds. Some of us water the seeds, but God gives growth to those seeds. Jesus' teaching platform would certainly reach the masses, But Jesus wasn't trying to live out a first century Billy Graham crusade. He was more concerned with building a ministry team one man at a time. If you recall back to Mark 1, verses 16 to 20, he had met these men, these young men, probably in their late teenage years, possibly early 20s, and he would call them. He would command them. He would commission them to follow him and become his disciples. But now, as we enter into Mark chapter 2, Jesus isn't done picking his first round draft pick. He's found another man that he will call to follow him and turn his life in a whole new direction. But this man, he's not a fisherman like the others. Of all professions... This man's a tax collector. Look at Mark 2, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Listen, Levi wasn't exactly a nice young man sitting at a lemonade stand in our suburban neighborhoods. 
That's not exactly what's going on here. He is not looked at as some cute, nice, well-manicured, well-respected man just doing good to everyone who walked by. No, Levi or Matthew, as he is referred to in Mark 3, verse 18, and really the gospel of Matthew that he would write, he was a tax collector or tax gatherer. Now, it's important for you and I to understand this section in Mark's gospel about what tax collectors were viewed as in Jesus' day. You see, tax collectors were not very respected or loved by the Jewish people. In fact, they were despised, and they were often avoided, I mean at all cost, by the most religious of the group. At this time, the Roman tax system was complex and varied, even in a small country like Palestine. Land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but taxes on transported goods, even along the Sea of Galilee, even along these fishermen who tried to run a business, they contracted out, the Romans did, local collectors, most of whom were ethnic Jews, but they were Jews who really didn't care about the Torah, didn't care about the Old Testament, could give a rip about who Moses is or Elijah is. You see, Levi, whom Mark mentions here in verse 14, was one of the middlemen, one of these men who would set up these booths who made bids in advance to collect taxes in a given area. However, tax collectors like Levi, they would embezzle what they received for taxes and a portion of the receipts would go in their back pocket. The Roman system of taxation depended on these Jews who cared nothing of the Torah to have appetites of greed. Appetites that did not mind, their conscience didn't bother them if they slipped those extra dollar bills in their pocket. So as you would imagine, tax collectors were obviously looked down upon. They were even hated by many of the Jewish people. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of Roman domination, detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. Because these men often extorted money and they padded their own pockets, some of them became very wealthy in Palestine. Even they were wealthy from the money they would extort from their poor Jewish friends who suffered unjustly. You may recall the story of Jesus and a famous tax collector, Zacchaeus. Now, most of us remember that children's nursery song, right? You remember how it goes? Zacchaeus was a... Okay. Zacchaeus was a little, a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. One thing you need to read is not the nursery rhyme, but the Bible to learn a little more about Zacchaeus. This wee little man had a big old bank account. Luke 19 tells us that Zacchaeus and Levi had something in common. They were both tax collectors. Luke 19 verse 2 says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. You see, tax collectors, 
they weren't only wealthy through selfish and dishonest and greedy means, but they were, they were known as some of the most wretched people you could ever associate with. They were not the role models you would want your kids to aspire to. These were the type of people that your parents would warn you about as kids. Don't hang out with those kids because if you do, you're going to join with them on the evening television and it won't be for highlights from a football game. It'll be for something else. In fact, if you do a word study of tax collectors in your New Testament, you'll notice a few eye-opening things about them. In Luke 15, verse 1, tax collectors are associated with lawless rebels, or the word sinner is often used in the Gospels to describe people who could care less about what God's law says. People who gave no attention to the Torah. In fact, Jesus taught a parable that would lump tax collectors, listen, and prostitutes in the same category of scandalous sinners. You can read more about that in Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32. Now, we all know that Jesus was pretty big on love, right? John 3, 16, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. Well, when Jesus would teach about how to love our enemies, he said that one of the tests of whether or not you are a true son or daughter of God is how you treat your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Love them. What's interesting, Jesus says, if you want to know whether or not you look like your heavenly father, bless, love, and pray for your enemies. But the people you don't want to be like are these tax collectors who are self-seeking people who only loved people who loved them. We read in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 46, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus doesn't stop there by using the tax collectors as a negative example. When Jesus would instruct his disciples, and therefore by implication for us today as church members, on how to relate to professing Christians who say they're a follower of Jesus but live in unrepentant sin. Notice how Jesus says to relate to these fruitless, nominal Christians whom the church should excommunicate. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he, listens, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do you see how Jesus is using tax collectors in a negative light? 
the type of people you don't want to be like, the type of people you don't want to love like. So of all people, and of all professions that Jesus could go look for, his first round draft pick to be on his ministry team, you would think that the king of glory who left heaven to come to earth would have a better pick than a tax collector. But he didn't. He looked at that selfish, greedy, Palestinian traitor, dead in the eye, to leave everything and follow him. To leave his life of greed. To leave all his ungodly chatter and ungodly fellowship and worldly ambitions, to drop it all, to throw it in the trash and see Jesus as his new treasure and as his future and hope. Just like Simon and Andrew and James and John, they left their fishing career. They left their family business behind. Levi did the same thing with the tax booth in his life of greed. He got up. He turned his back. He did the gospel U-turn, as I like to call what repentance is, and he followed Jesus. Friends, never, never, never underestimate the type of sinners Jesus will call to himself. Friend, that's why the gospel is scandalous. It does the total opposite of what our natural flesh and world thinks about who God could use. Friends, Levi did not make the Jewish superlative of most likely to become Christian in the yearbook. Friends, he was not on that radar. He was one of the most unlikely to become a follower of Jesus. Friends, that means that you and I should never count out any sinner that God one day might make a son or daughter of the Most High God. Brothers and sisters, don't give up then. Don't give up on the soul of your spouse. Don't give up on the soul of your grandchild or your son or your daughter. Don't give up on your friend at work. Don't give up on that next door neighbor. Don't give up on your mom or dad. Don't give up. Because it's usually when we start putting names in a blank that God could never save, that's when God shows off his power the most. Friends, I could guarantee right now, if we could roll the script on our testimonies of who we once were before we came to know Jesus, we might look a lot closer to Levi this morning than most of us probably want to admit because this church is full of sinners who've had their world turned upside down. This church is full of sinners who've seen that Jesus is our greatest treasure. This church is full of sinners that have seen the price, the pearl of great price, and sold it all for to find that treasure in Jesus. That's what we are doing here, friends. We're worshiping the Jesus who saves, who rescues and who calls those the world would deem as, well, not all that great. Friends, Jesus is in the wrecking business 
of destroying our stereotypes and saving the worst of sinners. He saves the worst of sinners and then he uses them for his glory. CCBC, oh friends, I pray that if you are ever tempted to think you don't belong here, the only reason you should ever think you don't belong in this church is because you're not sinful enough. The only reason you should think you, should, you don't belong here is you got the wrong view of the gospel and a wrong view of Jesus. This church is full of sinners, but this church is full of sinners who are following Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would never write off anyone's name as someone who could become a Christian. Friends, is there anyone in your life today? Is there anyone in your life today that you don't think Jesus could call to himself and make a disciple? What name just came to your mind? What name of a loved one, a friend, whether they live here or across the world, what name keeps coming back to your mind is, ah, I'm not sure, it would blow my mind if they ever became a Christian. Friend, I want you to write that name down, put it on a piece of paper and slip it into Mark chapter 2. I want you to refer back to Mark chapter 2 and the call of Levi every time you're tempted to believe that God could not save the person that you're thinking about. Pray for them. As Spurgeon said, I'm going to pray for you till you die, get converted, or Jesus calls me home. So guess what? That just means we're going to pray till we get to the grave or Jesus comes back. And maybe that person that I'm speaking of this morning is actually you. Maybe you are having a hard time sitting in a church this morning. Maybe you are in a religious or church environment where people criticized and judged you because of the sins that you've committed in your life. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, God can never save me. I mean, I could see him saving that guy or using that woman, but he could never do that to me. Well, if that's you, I just want to encourage you to keep listening. Keep following with me as we follow Jesus together. I pray that God would convince you otherwise. But friends, why is it that the most unloving, harsh, and critical people are sometimes found in religious settings? Why is it that even in churches of all places, people can feel rather unsafe as sinners to be real and get the help that they need? It's because human pride likes to take the throne in God's house. When church members care more about keeping up with the Joneses rather than getting low and serving one another, pride will touch every part of that ministry. When church members care more about obtaining titles and getting a platform on a stage rather than serving quietly where only Jesus sees, pride begins to touch every part of that ministry. When church members care more about keeping their traditions going rather than holding up the word of God above their preferences, our churches might be busy, but they're spiritually barren all at the same time. 
When church members are too concerned with looking their Sunday best, they don't confess their sins to others, and they don't get the help they so desperately need from the body of Christ. And the same can even happen in the life of a pastor. When a pastor takes the pulpit full of pride and self, seeking man's approval and man's applause, when a pastor uses the church, uses the sheep that Christ died for to puff up his own ego, Jesus is talked about from the pulpit, but Jesus is not worshipped from the pulpit. Oh, friends, as the leader goes, so often the congregation will go too. That's why the scriptures warn us about using discernment of the type of teachers and leaders we follow. That's why a man qualified to be a pastor, elder, and overseer in Christ's church must show a pattern of humility and love in his life. Titus 1, verses 7 and 8 says this, For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You see, one man's pride gone unchecked can lead to a landslide of hypocrisy behind him. Friends, I plead with you. You want to know how you can pray for Pastor Blake? Pray that God would keep my heart humble. Pray for me and the future elders of this church that we would be marked by courage and zeal and sound doctrine, but we would be marked by lowliness and humility, that the fragrance of the humility and meekness of Christ would exhume and be the aroma of the leaders in this church. Friends, never think that CCBC is just one decision away from being another sad statistic. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You see, human pride and man-centered religion can blind us from seeing God's grace through Jesus. Pride and man-centered religion can harden the hearts of church people from loving others who do not yet know Jesus. If we're not careful, any one of us members of CCBC, and me as your pastor, we could become so self-righteous that we lose who Jesus is and we lose loving other people in the process. Oh, that happened. That happened in Jesus' day. And it can happen in our day too. Notice verses 15 to 17. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors 
and sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we see Jesus leaving the crowds to go and chill on the sofa with some new friends he's made. You see, Jesus is not in the synagogue, though. He's not in that common place of worship, as you might expect. Rather, Jesus is at a party. He's at a great feast or a banquet, Luke's gospel says, that was held at Levi's spacious and nice house. You see, Levi did what real Christians do when they taste and see that the Lord is good. They begin following Jesus by telling their friends about Jesus. They spend time with people who actually see their need for a Savior. They carve out time in their schedule. They carve out margin in their life to love and serve them in hopes to help them see that Jesus is their only hope. Not Jesus in a nice car. Not Jesus in a respectable job. Not Jesus in a wonderful spouse. No, people who need Jesus because they see that their sins are great. But God's mercy in Christ is greater. You see, Levi was unashamed of the gospel before Lecrae was. Levi had found the bread of life and went and found beggars who needed that bread too. Levi wanted his friends, including his tax collector cronies that he used to run with, that he used to sin with, that he used to live a life of greed with, and he wanted them to begin running with him and running with Jesus. So what does Levi do? He throws a huge house party. You see, God redeems our ridiculous decisions and our foolish and sinful ones, right? Levi had the house. He had the house of the house. It was a slamming party, lots of food, lots of space, lots of couches. But you know what that lost man did when he found Jesus? I'm going to use this nice house. I'm going to use this space so that I can carve out time to help people follow Jesus. The house is packed, but the house is packed with one who is sitting on a sofa who came to rescue sinners just like them. However, there's also another group. I don't think they were invited to the party, but you ever have some of those people that show up to the party that shouldn't be there? They kind of heard something was invited and they kind of assumed they were there. Well, these guys are probably not necessarily in the party, but they're probably in the front corridor. They're probably looking through the window. They are close enough to hear and see what this Jesus is doing with these wretched tax collectors. You see, these men know how to cross their I's, dot their T's, at least when it comes to taking a Bible exam. They're pretty good at quoting Scripture. But they're a little surprised. They're a little surprised when they find out all the fuss, all the fame, 
all the glamour, all these people looking for Jesus, they are surprised to find who this Jesus is associating with. In verse 16, we're introduced for the first time to the Pharisees. We'll run into them quite a bit, like inconvenient speed bumps in a grocery parking lot. Not that I ever struggle with that. But every time they show up in the Gospels, they are antagonistic, and they burn with anger towards Jesus. You see, their own religious dog tags highlighted what they esteemed so much about themselves. The word Pharisee meant separate one. These were a strict sect of the Jewish people who zealously studied, taught, and would enforce hundreds of commandments found in Scripture and conveniently would twist the Scriptures to fit their own agenda. They were men who cared a lot about keeping the letter of the law, but totally neglecting the intent and heart behind it. According to Jewish historian Josephus, there were probably about 6,000 Pharisees roaming around in Palestine in the first century. These men touted themselves as better than the tax collectors and sinners. They were, in fact, separated, as their name would indicate, from such unclean people, unclean places that sinners and tax collectors would hang out. But friends, Jesus can see right through the costume of dead religion, can't he? Read Matthew chapter 23 sometime. It's the longest indictment Jesus ever pronounced on a group of people in his public ministry. And out of all people that Jesus would scathe, would expose, would call names like vipers and wolves and walking dead corpse, of all the people, Jesus could say the most unnerving, shocking, and rebuking things. It was among those who thought they were the holiest of the crowd the most spiritual, the most religious, but with laser-sharp accuracy. Jesus undressed the mask of their religious hypocrisy and deceit and called them men who did not know God. You see, the God of the Pharisees was not the God of the Bible. They could quote the God of the Bible, but they did not know the God of the Bible. The God of the Pharisees was the idolatry of seeking man's approval and boasting in themselves. They were preoccupied with how others viewed them. They were outwardly obsessed with seeking man's praise. They were those who were always tooting their own horn. They had no problem showing how wonderful they are. They had no problem sharing their resume of all they've accomplished for God in their life. They boasted in how much they prayed, they boasted in how much they gave, and they boasted even in how much they fasted. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus? Or the man who wrote vast portions of the New Testament, who would become the Apostle Paul? Did you know that he was once a Pharisee? Did you know that before he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was well-respected among all these 6,000 Pharisees. He was the Tom Brady 
of the Pharisees. Do you remember what he said in Philippians 3 of what he put his boast in before he knew Jesus? Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, Saul of Tarsus, just like the rest of these Pharisees thought, They had direct access to God. God had a special love for them that he really didn't have for anyone else. They 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 thought themselves as A-OK with God Almighty. But when Jesus shows up and Jesus' arrival with who he associates with, it becomes very clear that their assumptions about the Savior were off. The Pharisees would question his disciples on why Jesus would spend any time with this kind of depraved riffraff, these outcasts, these renegades. They would be floored that he would actually share a meal, table fellowship, hanging out with the most notorious of sinners in his day. But the assumptions and expectations would even eventually spill over into others asking, well, why does Jesus' disciples, why don't they fast? Why don't they do these spiritually disciplined things that all the other disciples are doing from John and the Pharisees? Well, in verses 18 to 22, Jesus uses an illustration of a wedding and how the wedding guests would not fast during a time of celebration. They would not fast while the bridegroom is standing right there. A wedding guest, especially those who would organize the details of the wedding, you know, making sure we've got enough wine, enough food, we've got the dancing floor set up. They were the ones making sure that they would keep the bridegroom happy and relaxed. A wedding was a time for feasting and rejoicing not a time of lament and fasting. Jesus likens the illustration to the proper timing and purpose of fasting. But that would only be appropriate when Jesus, as the bridegroom, would be taken away from them at a future day, a day that would come about three years from that day. And in that day, it would be appropriate for the disciples to lament and to fast. But even here, Jesus hints at a day that he would be arrested, taken into custody, and he would meet his divinely appointed death on the cross. But again, he continues on, and he builds on this by using two more parables in verses 21 to 22 to illustrate the lack of cohesion the lack of unity between an unshrunk cloth in an old garment and new wine being put into old wineskins. You see, the first example is of a new patch of cloth being sewn in an old garment. When washed, the new patch will shrink, causing a tear in both the garment and the patch. The second parable depicts used wineskins 
filled with new wine that ferments and expands, bursting the old and brittle wineskins. Both the wine and the wineskins would then come to ruin. Both parables, along with the wedding scene, is Jesus' way of teaching that his arrival was bringing about something new as the reign and saving rule of God's kingdom is found in Jesus, Jesus had inaugurated a new and better covenant with better promises, better promises to be received by all of us who would repent of our sins and believe in him. Here we see that Jesus is the new patch and he is the new wine. The old covenant was passing away, along with the spiritually dead practices of the Pharisees among the Jews. You see, the tax collectors knew they were sinful and ungodly, but they didn't care. The Pharisees knew that the tax collectors were sinful, and they didn't care about them. But the Pharisees were spiritually deceived and sinful, just like them. So friends, who on earth did Jesus come to rescue? Who is the bride that the bridegroom has made himself ready for? Who did Jesus come to call to himself and make his disciples? Did Jesus come simply to improve on the morally respectable and religious's life? Look again at Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, Jesus came for those who recognize their sin and their guilt before God. Jesus didn't come to be a motivational speaker to puff up our religious pride and ego. Jesus came to pop the balloons on our human pride, and he came as a savior to heal us of our depraved hearts. You might say, Pastor Blake, how depraved are we? Are we really that sick? Are we really that sinful? I mean, is Jesus being colorful and speaking hyperbole when he calls himself the physician? coming to rescue sinners? This is what Jesus says about the human heart, both of tax collectors, the Pharisees, and Fort Smith citizens. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, the problem in evil is not somewhere out there. The problem of evil is sitting right here. Friends, that's why the local church is not a country club that pats morally nice people on the back. Friends, if CCBC ever decides to become like that, I resign. The local church is not a country club to make you feel better about yourself. The local church is a hospital for sinners who see Jesus can transform their hearts. We don't need behavioral modification. We need supernatural transformation. Our hearts are desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Friends, the sin you and I have committed this week is not principally because of the people who've sinned against you. The problem with our hearts is that our hearts are sinful. Friends, Stanley Hauerwas might be right when he says that once you get married, you are really learning how to love a stranger. But you see, friends, we learn two things about Jesus in this passage. Jesus' friendship with notorious sinners exposes the religious mask that can cover up a self-righteous heart. And Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who loves an unlikely and undesirable bride. You see, when we get married, we might have to learn how to love a stranger because we don't know the future before it gets here. But when Jesus loves his bride, the church, he loves her in spite of all her sin. Jesus knew ahead of time how wicked, how wayward, how adulterous his bride would be And yet he pursues her, he dies for her, he draws her to himself and binds her in his love. Jesus has never been compatible with his bride. Jesus is perfect and his bride is not, but Jesus loves her still. Jesus has never looked down on his bride. Jesus has never slandered his bride but he is committed to love and care for his bride. Even when his bride wavers in his love, her love for him, he still loves her. Jesus doesn't love his bride because his bride gets everything right all the time. Jesus loves his bride by laying down his life to make her holy. For all her greed, all her lust, all her pride, all her unbelief, and all her idolatry. Jesus dies for her, purchases for her all the spiritual blessings she will ever need to make her holy and righteous in his sight. You see, Jesus purchased for sinners like us all that we would ever need to be pure and clean, to have wedding garments that are white, washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
How much does God love sinners? Even the worst of them? Oh, fellow saint, fellow surfer, suffer, fellow sinner, how has God shown his love towards you? Romans 5, starting in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, Christ didn't come to pat us on the back and say that we're doing just fine. Keep up your moralism. Keep up your legalism. No, Jesus came to rescue and resurrect a sick, dying, spiritually dead and depraved people and make them his beautiful and precious bride. Jesus didn't come to marry a spiritual Miss America. He didn't go on the bachelor to find his bride. He went to the slums in our perversion, in our hypocrisy, in our pride, and he lavishes his love on us. He scoops us up and he makes us beautiful by his grace. You see, in eternity past, God the Father gave his son, Jesus Christ, a bride, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that he would call to himself and make them whole and happy in Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom who perfectly loves his bride. Jesus died for his bride, paying the penalty for his bride, rises from the dead for his bride, and gives his bride new life and victory in him. You see, Jesus didn't come to people who think they already have it all together. Jesus came for a people who knew they were wicked and needed a savior. If you're here today, and you realize that your heart has resembled more of the Pharisee than the heart of Jesus, confess that pride to him. Make this your prayer, as one Puritan once prayed. O thou Father of my spirit, thou King of my life, cast me not into destruction. Drive me not from thy presence but wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it that thy own hand may make it whole. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we thank you of reminding us that you save the most unlikely. You love the most undesirable and you make them your bride. Lord, I pray that you would use this example of Jesus calling Levi in this house party that the Pharisees who were so prideful missed who Jesus is. Lord, use this passage in our own hearts to teach us humility, to teach us about your grace, or that we would be a people 
who see that our great physician is in Christ and in no one else. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.